morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church as Michelle prayed. Uh, my name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm glad y'all are here this morning. Uh, and for those of you who were with us uh, for Chatham Serves, thanks again for the hours and the effort you put into serving our community. I've heard story after story of the great experiences that we had and the great connections that were made and even the relationships that are starting to build as people were serving together. So we're glad you were there with us, and I'll echo Ashley's statement. If you had to miss last week for whatever reason, uh, we hope you join us uh, when we do this again in the spring. It's a great opportunity to serve our community. Uh, if you are a guest here this morning, I want to give a particularly warm welcome to you, whether it's your first time with us or your first time in a long time. I'm glad you're here, and at the end of the service, I'd love to say hi. So I'm going to be in the back under the exit sign. Uh, come say hi. Tell me your name a little bit about how you found us and what your experience was like this morning. And I want to make sure that you get one of our welcome bags, one of our welcome gifts before you head out. So I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, early last year, Marvel Studios started launching TV shows on the Disney Plus platform, on the Disney Plus streaming service, as a way to both support and expand their cinematic universe. And one of the shows they launched was and is called Loki. And Loki follows... Uh, the titular character of the same name, which if you, either if you follow the Marvel Cinematic Universe you're familiar with, or if you're familiar with Norse mythology, you get a general sense of who Loki is or what no Loki is like, a bit of a trickster. In the Cinematic Universe, he, is a he starts as a villain and turns into a bit of an anti-hero. And the show uh, sort of goes in directions that the Cinematic Universe has not gone in yet. And it starts introducing themes like parallel worlds, alternate timelines, and an or a, a, a sort of a, a, an authoritative body that is trying to keep all the worlds and timelines that exist in order, in order, and as they stated, so that reality doesn't collapse. And oftentimes in the series, they'll show an image like this one. And the main line, the main white line that you see, is it represents the way that this authoritative body believes that time and reality should progress. And that's the way that they want to keep things. And wherever you see a branch, they're trying to prevent those. Those are things that have uh, altered the timeline, that have created something different. It means that something or someone has disrupted the way that they believe things are supposed to be. And an alternate timeline has branched off. And in looking at that, I can't help but think that it's intriguing to consider this idea that an event because right? these are moments where something happens and a new timeline branches off. It's interesting to consider that an event, a person, a moment, an idea, a community can stand in such stark contrast to the way things are flowing that a new way of being can be created. A new path can emerge, a different reality, an alternative way to go to the way things are expected to be or the way things are. We're starting a new series here at Chatham Community Church titled Counterculture for the Common Good. Throughout history, the people of God have consistently been unable to fit neatly into the boxes, whatever boxes, ideological boxes, sociological boxes, cultural boxes, that society sort of offers. We've often found ourselves as a church, and when I say church, I mean the global church, the historic church, we've often found ourselves in the position of being counter to the flow of culture, counter to the prevailing cultural norms, counter to some prevailing cultural idea in one or more areas. Now, the point was never for the church to be contrarian, 
for the sake of being contrarian. And the reality is that even though the church has historically stood counterculturally, in many instances, the church hasn't always made the right choices in what to stand counterculturally for. And oftentimes they've gone along with the cultures in moments when they should have stood against the culture. But, but when we stand counterculturally in the right ways, in the right spots, it's never to be contrarians for contrarians' sake. It's always because we believe that there is another option another way in Jesus, another branch to take, which can bring about the greatest good. We were always meant to be counterculture for the common good. And it's all because 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus entered the world that was dominated by the Roman Empire, the world where they ruled. And in that world, in the first century, it was not uncommon to hear a particular refrain or something like this, to hear a phrase like, Caesar is Lord. And for those of us who are nerds of nobility or nerds of monarchy, Lord seems like just a title for a noble. But in the first century, this title had religious connotations even. It had all power connotations. Jesus steps into this world, a man born uh, in the area of Galilee. His life lived in relative obscurity, and he disrupted the flow. He disrupted the way things were expected to be. He disrupted the norms of that society. He disrupted it so much that an alternate path emerged. Something branched off the timeline, so to speak. And in that different branch, a different cry starts being called out. Jesus is Lord. Now, it isn't just that there is someone different to call Lord, but what it means to be Lord has changed in that alternate path. How one becomes Lord in that alternate path has changed. What it looks like to follow that Lord or be under his Lordship is different than in the prevailing path, than in the original timeline, so to speak. That phrase... And all that comes attached to it, that phrase, Jesus is Lord, and all that comes attached to it has influenced how and when the church is called to stand against the culture ever since. And today we're going to look at a passage that culminates with that declaration, Jesus is Lord, and also talks about how that affects how we live, how we think, and how we approach the world around us. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. We're going to read in chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 5, and we're going to read some more verses outside of that later. But you can look that up if you have a Bible or access to a Bible on your phone. And if you don't, don't worry about it, because we're going to project it onto the screen in just a second. But we're going to start in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians. And if you don't know where Philippians is in your Bible, uh, you move to the New Testament, you pass Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you start to get into letters, and there's a series of letters that end in I-A-N-S. Among those is Philippians. So you move past Romans and before Hebrews. Somewhere in there is Philippians. So here we go, Philippians 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the span of time that covers the start of Jesus' life and his public ministry and ends with the, with the last writings of the New Testament coincides with the time of the Roman Empire and the rule of its emperors, or as we commonly call them, Caesars. The Roman Empire was the great power in that area of the world, and the Caesar was the most powerful person in the most powerful body in that world, the most powerful institution, the most powerful force. You had the most powerful person of the most powerful thing. And though each Caesar has their own story of how they came to power, how they held power, and how they exercised that power, what their rule looked like. There are some common elements in all of their stories, whether it's Julius Caesar or Tiberius, who was likely the emperor during Jesus' time, or even Nero, who was likely the emperor when Paul was writing his letter. Their stories have a lot a little or a lot, of all of the following. And this is the Caesar's journey. They all have forms of, of demonstrating strength and might. You only became and held on to being a Caesar if you could prove there was no one stronger than you. Or at the very least, if no one believed they could be stronger or mightier than you. So there were demonstrations of strength and might. There was control. You wanted to centralize decisions and expand the scope of your rule if you were a Caesar. There was elimination of opposition through death, through banishment, through wiping out of potential heirs who might become threats to you. There was a desire to make sure no one had any cause to stand against you or any ability to make a move against you. You were brutal towards external threats that emerge so that word would spread and no one would want to test you. You consolidated power. Former allies got frozen out. They may have helped you get into power, but once they exhausted their usefulness, they were frozen out. Not just cast aside, but exiled even. You formed alliances when it was convenient and you severed alliances when they weren't. And all of them had a sense of wanting to be platformed for the sake of ultimate allegiance. This is why in the first century there was something known as the emperor cult. Emperors were worshipped. The statement, Caesar is Lord, wasn't just a societal statement. It wasn't just a political statement. It was a religious statement. These were figures who were believed to be God-like. And this is what they aspired to. Now these individuals for all intents and purposes, were the most successful individuals of their time, leading the most successful movement of their time, the powerful movement, the conquering movement. They were the pinnacle of life. At least that's what it appeared. Their lives, even if you can't aspire to being an emperor, the type of lives they live are the types of lives you would want to aspire to, which means that all over the culture, what is permeating the culture, what is permeating society is the Caesar way. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, valuing yourself above others, securing your own interest and well-being. The Caesar's power was such, and it was, was, was such importance that their visage, their face, was minted onto the coins of the land, often with statements alluding to their power or deity. Some maybe even saying, Caesar is Lord. 
right? Again, not like the lords and ladies of nobility, but a sense of their being rulers of all, of being supreme. These weren't just words on the coin, but they were words that were chanted, words that were proclaimed, values that were absorbed, things that impacted and shaped how people lived their lives, how they behaved, what they aspired to. This was the first century world. Think of a world that is influenced deeply by a pursuit that includes vain conceit, selfish ambition, seeking your own good above the good of others, valuing others less in order to value yourself more. Now, we may not have emperors anymore in our world, or emperors like that anymore, but there are still people, institution, cultural values, and more that get framed as being the ideal, that get framed as the thing to aspire to, as the thing to reach for, as the thing to work for, as the thing to model ourselves after. And oftentimes, when you dig deep into those things, you will more often than not find signs of selfish ambition or vain conceit or seeking one's own self-interest of hungering for consolidating power, of valuing yourself more than others. And that's what we're told to shoot for. Take a moment and think, for example, of how status, how prestige, how position are used in our modern world. How often are power, prestige, and position used to get further ahead or to get out of uncomfortable or delicate situations? Think about how many times people in positions of prestige, power, and status avoid consequences for their mistakes, that someone with less prestige, less power, less status wouldn't be able to avoid. Think of how, how you felt when you've seen or experienced someone use their power, their position, their prestige, or their status to get further ahead while leaving others behind, sometimes people who helped them get there. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of one of those boots stepping on your head for someone else to get further on. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't seem right, but those people seem to get to the top, don't they? They seem to be there. And if that's the way to do it, then maybe we just need to suck it up and play the game, don't we? No. Maybe there are more similarities to the first century world than we're willing to admit. And Jesus steps not only into that world, but steps into our reality and disrupts the flow. One of the first things that Paul mentions as he starts talking about Jesus is this idea that Jesus doesn't cling to his godness. In other versions of the Bible, it says that Jesus empties himself of his godness. He has all the power at the start, he has equality with God at the start. He is unmatched from the very beginning, he is sovereign from the very beginning, he has everything, and yet he's born into relative obscurity and laid in a manger, a feeding trough, in a place for animals. He sets out on a very different path than the path that the Caesars walked and journeyed on to get to power. But that doesn't mean he never had the option to take the Caesars journey. Early on in Jesus' public ministry, we have an episode where the evil one draws him away and invites him into the Caesar way. 
He invites him into the path of vain ambition, uh, of selfish ambition, of vain conceit, of valuing himself above others, of consolidating power. He invites them to give a show of power, to make the kind of allegiances that will consolidate his rule and strengthen his ability to govern. He could have chosen into that. He could have chosen into valuing himself, securing his position, valuing his well-being, putting himself above others. He could have chosen the Caesar way. He could have followed the Caesar's journey, but he doesn't leverage his divinity for that. He doesn't leverage what is already his in order to put himself above others and protect himself. Instead, Jesus serves. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples and friends. Jesus invests himself, his whole life, into blessing the people he encounters. He heals, he frees, he feeds, he, 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 he teaches, he frames a new way of being for people. These are all things that he has power and authority to do, and he does them not for his own sake. He does them not to secure his own position. He does it not to sort of amass the, a following that could conquer. He does it to bless the people around him. And he's a controversial figure in the first century. People can't quite seem to figure him out. People are suspicious of his motives. Jesus, from the very beginning, is counter-cultural. And opposition emerges, right? People try to squash him. And when opposition emerges, he doesn't amass armies. He doesn't mobilize his followers to, to face the, that opposition down. He does not seek retribution. He even goes so far as to ask God to forgive the people who wronged him, even to the ultimate, the people who crucified him. Jesus doesn't go up high. He gets brought down low and low and low to the lowest of the low. He gets as low as low can get. He's betrayed by someone in his inner circle. His closest friends, most of them abandon him. He is put in a sham trial he is beaten, he is bloodied, he is mocked, he is ridiculed, he's insulted, and he's executed in the most painful of ways. On that cross, and as he takes his last breath, it seems like Jesus is defeated. He is vanquished. The timeline has been preserved. The flow of culture has been preserved. It looks like the flow was too much. It looks like it overwhelmed them. But wait. Because beyond the cross, there was the resurrection. Beyond death, there was life. Beyond the sense of abandonment and loneliness and losing it all, there was restoration for him, but for all of humanity more than that, for all of humanity. Let me remind us what the passage says, that therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every, uh, in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus goes from as high as you can get, equality with God, seemingly down, 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 down until he's alone, dead on the cross, about as low as you can get. And then you get this portion, right, where he goes up again where God lifts him up to the highest place, where everyone is acknowledging him as the name above all names. And the declaration that Jesus 
is Lord takes on new meaning, takes on new significance. He takes it all the way down, but the way down becomes then the way up. He follows a very different journey than the Caesars, but he ends up in a much better place. And what he does, it creates a different way. It creates an alternate path, not just for the people in the first century, but for all of humanity all around the world ever since. A way that isn't marked by a me-first attitude. A way that isn't marked by, a, by an attitude that says, I need to secure my own status, my own position, my own well-being, me, me, me. It's not marked by trying to get to the top on the backs of other peoples. It's not marked by an ends justify the means. It's not marked by not valuing others, but rather by devaluing them. No, it's not marked by any of those things. It's not marked by using people. It's marked by something entirely different. The word, the phrase Jesus is Lord takes on a different significance than the phrase Caesar is Lord. It implies something completely different. They are powerful words to say, but they're more than words. Last month, we had a a child dedication in our church, in our community, and y'all know if you've been here that I love child dedications, and as part of the child dedications, the parents come up and they say some things before us and before God. They aren't just words that they are saying. They are making a commitment for a way that they are going to live, and then the congregation rises and says something back to the family and before God. These aren't just words that get left here on that day. They are a commitment that we make for a way we are going to live with together. See, sometimes words are more than just words. Sometimes words are bonds that commit us to a way of being. They are a way to declare that we are going to follow a different path, that we are going to do some particular things. And the phrase, Jesus is Lord, is like that as well. It's not just a declaration. It is a commitment. It is something to declare and something to live as well. It's a commitment to live in that alternative way, that branch off that cultural timeline or that cultural flow. It's one we are invited to walk in, and it affects everything. Paul uses this laying out of the Jesus journey, culminating in the declaration of Jesus' lordship, which is thought to be an early Christian hymn that communities of followers of Jesus throughout the first century world would have said, they would have sung, they would have declared. He uses these statements to make a case for something he had asked the people to do. He had asked the community to behave in a particular way, to to treat each other in a particular way, to posture themselves towards the world in a particular way. And I'm going to give you what he said right now. This is why, this is how Jesus is Lord affects everything, or at least affects that first century community in specific ways, and us as well. It says, this is at the start of the chapter that we just read, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what follows that is the Jesus journey that we just read previously and talked about for the last few minutes. At the start of this 
Paul does a little bit of work with how we function as a community. One of the ways in which the Jesus way sounds countercultural is that it, it, it is a community movement. It, it, it is about how we are with each other as those who are following Jesus. We are not just on this path alone. We are on this path as individuals together. And so it fights against the extremes of collectivism and the extremes of individualism. It bridges a different path for us. It talks about being like-minded, not thinking the same things, but approaching things in a similar way. That a love that we have looks similar and exercises itself in similar ways. That we head in the same direction for the same purposes in the same spirit. But then he lays out this different framework for how we live under the lordship of Jesus. And you'll notice that some of the words used here are some of the same words I use to describe the Caesar way, but in the counter here. It's about using what you've got, what you bring, not to advance yourself, but to help others. It's about bringing all yourself to the table, but bringing it for the common good, not for your self-fulfillment. It's about caring for those around you. This is essentially everything that the Caesar way is not, but the Jesus way is. It's to follow his example. And just like in the first century, it's true today that living the lordship of Jesus is countercultural. It always has been, it always will be. Sometimes some of the elements of living the Jesus way will be more strongly countercultural than others. There have been movements in society where certain values align to some extent, but there are always going to be places where living the Jesus way is going to be countercultural. It was then, and it is now. Uh, about eight years ago, I started a, a job in New York where I was overseeing a territory that was far from where I lived. It was in an area called Long Island. Uh, and Long Island is true to its name. It is a long island. Uh, and it, takes, it took me a long time to get to Long Island, and then it would take a long time to get to places on Long Island. And during that time, I started to become familiar with the GPS. I started to use GPSs a lot, and then eventually started using Google Maps. And when I would route things to Long Island, inevitably, the default, the, the GPS and Google Maps would send me or would route me through something called the Long Island Expressway. The Long Island Expressway. And if any of you have ever been to Long Island, you know where I'm heading with this, but the Long Island Expressway. It didn't take me long to figure out, and as soon as I started talking to people from Long Island, it didn't take me long to figure out that the Long Island Expressway is telling you something, the name, just with the acronym, L-I-E. It's a lie. <laughs> it is not an expressway. Everyone on Long Island avoids the L-I-E because it's a lie. If you want to get anywhere on Long Island or from Long Island with any uh, sort of sense of timeliness, you avoid the Long Island Expressway like the plague. But every GPS defaults you there. Every app defaults you there. In order to get to places in a timely manner, you have to override. You have to make an active choice away from the default. You have to go against what the flow is telling you. The way of the lordship of Jesus is not the default in our world's GPS. And I want to say that a little bit because I want to emphasize that it's not enough to simply say, oh yes, 
Jesus is Lord in my life. The default of our society, the default of our world will pull you towards something that looks like it's leading towards a good life, but just like the Long Island Expressway is a lie. And we have to intentionally route against it, reroute away from it over and over again. The pull towards selfish ambition will always be there. The pull towards vain conceit will always be there. The pull towards valuing ourselves above others will always be there. The pull towards working to get ourselves ahead uh, above others will always be there. We have to reroute consistently. We have to work against the default in order to get on the way of Jesus, the Jesus way. So let's start a little bit of that today. I want you to consider what rerouting might look like for you today. What it might look like for you to get off whatever the Caesar way is called now, because it's no longer called the Caesar way. It has lots of different names. What might it take for you to get off that and get on the Jesus way? And I want to use a recent event to help us visualize what that might look like or how we might reflect on it. In the last month, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. Passed away. And that involves lots of changes in, in England and in the UK. One of the changes that involves is it has to do with their coinage. The, in the coins of the empire and in the money, they carry the image of Queen Elizabeth, or they carried the image of Queen Elizabeth. But now that the queen has died, all the money needs to be reminted or reprinted, or at least new money needs to be re- reprinted and reminted in order to carry the image of the new king, of Charles. They changed their money to reflect that there is a new sovereign, that there is a new ruler, that there is a new monarch that they are pledging their allegiance to. I want you to take a moment and imagine your life. Imagine the choices you make how you position yourself towards certain things, what your aspirations reflect and say about you. And imagine that we are putting that on a coin, right? On a coin. And along with that, it will reflect who is Lord of your life. Whose face would show up? What would show up? What would it say if it weren't a face but a writing? Who would it say is Lord? In the first century, the coin said Caesar is Lord, and that reflected the life of the Roman Empire. If you minted your life right now, what would the coin say? What would it look like? What would it reflect? Maybe it would be like 50-50. Some of it would be clearly, yeah, this is sort of Jesus stuff, and some stuff, maybe not. Take a moment right there where you are. Imagine, picture what the coin of your life would look like if you were to mint it. Think about how you engage in conversations, how you pursue your goals, how you think and envision your own value, your own worth. Where do you source it from? How do you treat those who disagree with you? Or how do you think of them? How do you formulate your positions, your opinions on things, on issues that affect our society and affect your life? How often does Jesus enter the picture when you're considering those things? How often do you consider what is the Jesus approach towards this? There's no shame or guilt Remember, the default GPS setting for our world is not the Jesus way. I've been at this for over 20 years. I've been a pastor for a number of years, and there are still lots of things that I need to consciously reroute, that I need to remind myself, I didn't think about Jesus in this instance. So I'm not looking to shame or guilt you. This is not what this is about. This is an honest invitation to reflect, 
and to consider whether you need to remit your coin today in any way. Whether there's any way where the, the statement of who is Lord needs to change, whether the image on there needs to change in any way. Today's a good day to remint your coin, to change who is Lord, to change what path you're on. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me on stage right now. And one of the ways we're going to respond to this today is we're going to take communion together. Communion is the celebration of the Lord's Supper, right? Key word there, Lord. It's a way in which we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus and its significance of, uh, for our lives. It's a way today that we can say we are reminting our coins because when you come to the Lord's table, so one thing that you're saying is Jesus is Lord. That's why I come to his table. Here's what that's going to look like today. I'm going to invite the folks that I've asked to host tables to go to tables right now. And in a moment, the worship team is going to play a song for us. I want you to reflect right now how your, mint, how your coin needs to be reminted. And when you have something, something in which you want to say, yes, Jesus is Lord, I want to invite you to come and get the elements. There are gluten-free crackers and grape juice for you. Come and get them while the worship team is singing the song. And then hold on to those elements. If you are on the way, of Je- on the way with Jesus, the table is open for you. Hold on to the elements Uh, Go back to your seat, and uh, at a moment in the song, uh, my friend Chris is going to come up and lead us as we take the elements. Let me pray for us. The worship team is going to play. I invite you to reflect, and when you're ready, come and get the elements. Lord Jesus, you have set a different path for us. Today, Lord, show us how we need to reroute. Give us a clear sense of of where the coin of our lives, the coin of our soul needs to be reminted. Where are places where it needs to be affirmed today or declared for the first time that Jesus is Lord. And may we come to your table in faith, hope, and trust that you do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. The worship team is going to sing. And at the time, just come and get the elements.